But when you create a system in which political rights and the right to political participation is delineated on the basis of your ethnic identity, that only has the product of promoting sectarianism. The contemporary position of people like Milorad Dodik or his partner in the main Croat Nationalist Party, Dragan Šović, increasingly is that Bosnia doesn't exist, it has never existed, there is no such thing as a Bosnian identity, or a Bosnian culture, or a Bosnian history. I think Bosnia today is objectively a less stable and less safe place than it was, ironically enough, in 2005 or 2006, when the memory of the war was still very, very present. Welcome to part one of my conversation with Yasmin Mujanovic, which focused on the growing tensions in Bosnia and Herzegovina. In this part of our conversation, we cover topics such as the incredibly complex political system of Bosnia and Herzegovina, as well as the multitude of structural tensions that are embedded within. Yasmin also explained the principal political actors in Bosnia and highlighted the growing divisive rhetoric by nationalist leaders. We discussed the ongoing uncertainty surrounding the October 2nd general elections, as well as the multitude of irregularities that have been observed. We conclude this part with a discussion about attempts, mainly by Croat nationalists, to force and formalise deeper sectarian segregation in the Bosnian political system. Part 2 will be released on Thursday, 27th of October, where we do a deep dive into the controversial decision by the High Representative to change electoral law on the night of the elections. We also explore what this means for Bosnia and Herzegovina more broadly, and what role regional and global powers play in the nation's future. Finally, if you're getting value out of the show, please consider becoming a patron of The Voices of War at patreon.com forward slash The Voices of War. Thank you. My guest today is Dr. Yasmin Mujanovic, who is a political scientist and policy specialist in Southeast European and international affairs. He has worked as a scholar, policy analyst, consultant, researcher, and writer in both North America and Europe. Yasmin's academic research concentrates primarily on the politics of contemporary Southeastern Europe, with a particular focus on the politics of the non-EU states of the Western Balkans. He joins me today to discuss the unfolding constitutional crisis in Bosnia and Herzegovina, where incidentally, both of us are from. Yasmin, thank you very much for joining me on The Voices of War. Uh, thanks for having me, and always good to meet another Bosnian with another exciting English accent. We all speak <laughs> our acquired languages in different ways. Aren't we the chameleons? Uh, <laughs> wherever we've settled, mm-hmm. uh, we'll, uh, we'll tend to adopt. Indeed. Uh, well, I guess that's uh, that's perhaps a good place to start as well, because I think it's, uh, it's only fair that we uh, explain to our audience uh, just a little bit about your background, especially given that it's, uh, it's rather similar to my own. Sure. Uh, so maybe before we dive into the mind-blowing complexity of Bosnian politics, maybe you can give us a potted version of your life story and explain why you ended up researching the Western Balkans. Uh, sure. So I think as we were just discussing uh, before we started recording, you know, we're we're about a generation. We're that sort of uh, 80s generation of kids um, that when the war actually broke out in Bosnia and the broader Yugoslav dissolution was unfolding, we were we were quite young. We were kids. Um, mm. My family fled Sarajevo, where we're from, uh, in April of 1992, uh, which is very mm. early on in the war. So we were really only there for the kind of ramping up to the uh, to the most significant episodes of violence. We were we were displaced. We were refugees uh, mm. across a number of European countries. We eventually settled in Germany for a number of years, and then Not a yeah, exactly. So a familiar route, uh, what I sometimes call the uh, usual refugee route. Yeah, um, that's right. And uh, then eventually we settled in Canada in um, in 1996, which is where I grew up from about the age of nine or ten, and then. Since then, my life has taken me in other places, including the United States, and I have, as an adult, lived and worked in Bosnia as well. Yeah. Okay. That's. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it is a very familiar path. But why? Uh, so, so why researching the Western Balkans? Yeah, it's a good. It's a good question. I mean, to to be honest with you, I I I um I resisted it for a long time. So when I was kind of going through my academic processes, you know, when I was doing my BA and my MA. I did nothing to do with the Balkans. I, I worked on social right. movements and democratic theory and those kinds of things. 
Um, I was, you know, I obviously grew up in a very political household, given the circumstances of our uh, departure from Bosnia. But, but I, you know, is in many ways, I think like a lot of our generation quite resentful of the things mm. that had happened to us. And I didn't, you know, I didn't want to kind of re-traumatize myself for, for lack of a better uh, term. And I wanted to use the mm. opportunities mm. that were afforded to me in places like Canada to, to strike out on my own. Mm. But by the time I got to my PhD, I, I realized that I was, I was kind of cheating I was cheating on myself intellectually because, you know, mm. what I would be doing is reading my turgid democratic theory and my Sheldon mm. Mullins and my all other kinds of things. And then at night mm. I would be, you know, reading Bosnian media, watching Bosnian <laughs> YouTube and these kinds of things and, and, you know, reading things from Serbia and Kosovo and wherever else. And I realized at some mm. point, okay, you know, you're clearly interested in this. So, so you have to make a deal. And I made a deal with myself and the deal was I had to, if I was going to study and work and write on Bosnia and the Balkans, it, it had to be in a way that I felt was not just intellectually honest, but was also novel, by which I mean that that I was going to try to bring something to this literature and, and, and to these debates that I felt wasn't, wasn't there to date. Mm. And what that meant for me at the time was that I was going to bring my interest in democratic theories and theories of democratization and social movements and civil activism. I was going to bring that to the literature and to the debates about Bosnia and, and sort of the post-war Western Balkans. And that is what eventually sort of turned into my first book. And, and I think in many ways, despite the fact that I increasingly work on things related to what we would essentially call like security studies, um, mm. I, I, I think it's, it's in my own mind, I don't know whether maybe the people who read my work feel this way, they, they're, they're certainly, you know, um, they can criticize me in whatever way they see fit. But in my own mind, it's always kind of underpinned by this commitment to what I consider sort of democratic theory and, and democratization mm. and, and, you know, the roots and sources of democracy in a kind of grand social sense. Yeah, that, that's that's excellent. I mean, again, it's many of the things you said resonate with me, particularly the piece of being pulled back mm. uh, into it. I mean, I've tried to stay away from you know Bosnia, Bosnian politics, and I have largely. Yeah. But uh, as you and I spoke previously, my partner and I, we went to Bosnia and started mm. a not-for-profit in Bosnia as, mm. a, as a way of uh, doing something. And I think even this podcast has its roots in dealing or healing my own trauma from those years, and and really to try and understand what. What it, what it is that divides people and how we can find paths towards dialogue and peace uh, and democracy in a kind of long-term sense. So all of that really resonates with me. And that's perhaps a nice way to pivot to my first question <clears throat> on the topic, and that is the uh, absurd complexity uh, of Bosnia and Bosnian politics. Uh, but I think it's only fair that we, that we get you to explain <clears throat> just a little bit uh, the surface level uh, complexities. It's absolutely necessary for anyone who hasn't decided to walk down that perilous path of trying to understand uh, what's actually happening in Bosnia. Uh, so maybe just a brief outline of the origin of the uh, current structures, sure. uh, and of course the tensions that are embedded within. Um, so yeah, it's 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 obviously a really necessary question. So what I will say right off the bat, what I always remind my audiences, um, <laughs> including you know policy audiences, um, mm. Bosnia Herzegovina has the most complicated constitutional regime in the world. I don't think there's any question yeah. about that. So yeah. the, the, the kind of the basic breakdown here is that uh, Bosnia's constitution is the product of the Dayton Peace Accords, which brought about the end of the Bosnian War, which lasted from 1992 to 1995. It was part of the broader Yugoslav wars and the Yugoslav dissolution crisis, which lasted from 91 until 2001. So conflicts in Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia, and then eventually in um, Kosovo and then Serbia, Montenegro, and the 1999 air campaign, and then eventually a relatively minor um, insurgency in what is today North Macedonia. So over the course mm. of that essentially decade of war, we have a total death toll of somewhere in the neighborhood of 140 to 150,000 people. This is collectively for all of these Yugoslav mm -hmm. wars. Far and away, the deadliest of these conflicts is the Bosnian war. So fully 100,000 mm -hmm. people are killed in Bosnia alone. And disproportionately, the largest number of those killed, not just in Bosnia, but in the entirety of the Yugoslav wars, come specifically from the ethnic Bosnian community. This is what we're formally referred to in the West as Bosnian Muslims. Um, and the reason for that is that um, the Serb nationalist forces in Bosnia 
uh, directly, uh, not just backed, but I mean, they were they were realistically proxy forces of the Serbian state under Slobodan Milosevic, um, mm-hmm. you know, specifically targeted ethnic Bosniaks for extermination and expulsion in order to create what is today one of the two so-called uh, constitutive entities of the Bosnian state, the Republika Srpska. And the Republika Srpska, uh, we can most readily compare at this time to what the Russians are presently doing in Ukraine, right? These these so-called self-declared people's republics in Donetsk and Luhansk and other places, right? Mm, so it's mm, that kind mm, of model. Mm. You, you occupy, you expel, and then you claim to have established a new political regime uh, on these occupied territories. Just on that, that's a very sensitive thing to say, and, I, and I'd imagine that uh, any Serbs in my audience uh, or Serbians in my audience sure. would probably react to that uh, as much as I absolutely uh, agree and see that point. But I think we'll uh, we'll circle back on that sure. because I think that's an important comparison to make. Absolutely, because it it, it also froze the conflict, mm-hmm. uh, or, or or it created effectively a ceasefire from right. ninety five onwards, uh, which I think is important, which is why I just want to highlight that. Yeah. yeah, so absolutely, and I'm happy to circle back on that. Um, and so suffice it to say, without getting into the weeds, in 1995, the U.S. brokers the Dayton Peace Accords. And they do a number of very important things, which continue to, in various ways, inform, shape, and bedevil contemporary Bosnian politics. The one kind of structural main takeaway from Dayton is that Bosnia continues on as a sovereign state in terms of its kind of international character. Bosnia declares independence in 1992, and and Dayton affirms that. However, Dayton effectively internally partitions Bosnia, and it creates this extremely complex a uh, political regime, almost the entirety of which is divided along strict ethno-sectarian lines, specifically among what the Dayton Accords and specifically Annex Four, which is Bosnia's mm-hmm. constitution. And incidentally, as far as I know, Bosnia's constitution is the only constitution in the world which is an annex of a broader document. Written first time in English. That's uh, right. Uh, well, they, well, <laughs> that's is, another thing. There actually is yeah. no local official translation, yeah. nor has it ever yeah. passed the Bosnian parliament. So the only um, sort of legal constitutional uh, language that we have is actually ling- uh, is first and foremost in English, which is actually important, but we, we're not going to get into mm, the weeds mm. about the difference yeah, between the yeah, terms yeah. constituent and constitutive. Um, anyway, <laughs> so uh, the Dayton Constitution creates this extremely convoluted political structure, the, the the sort of the main features of which are that Bosnia is divided into a series of so-called entities and cantons. You have mm. two primary entities, as I said, the Republika Srpska, and then in the western part of the country, you have the so-called federation entity. Most of Bosnia's Bosniak and Croat communities live in the federation entity. Most of the country's Serb community lives in the Republika Srpska, although there are large minorities or significant minorities of each in in sort of the the other entity. Moreover, the federation entity is then further subdivided into 10 so-called cantons, most of which again are um, divided along ethnic lines. So there's a handful of majority Bosnia cantons and a handful of majority Croat cantons, as well as two or three, depending on how you want to count, mixed cantons. There is mm-hmm. also a so-called district um, in the northeast of the country. This is the city mm-hmm. of Brčko. Yeah. Brčko is very important because it strategically splits the physical territory of the RS entity in two. So the western half of the Republika Srpska, where the de facto capital of the entity, Banyaluka, is located, does not actually share a physical land border with Serbia because of the existence of the district of Bečko. Finally, on top of this pyramid, you have what's called the Office of the High Representative. This is an internationally appointed envoy, and he is the sort of final authority to determine the correct interpretation, as it were, of the Bosnian constitution and the Dayton Accords. And I do say he because it has only ever been men who have occupied Mm -hmm. this office, including the current occupant of the office, a former German parliamentarian by the name of Christian Schmidt, Christian Schmidt. And it should also be said that each of these respective cantons, entities, they all have their own parliaments. Yeah. So you have 14 different parliaments on the territory of Bosnia-Herzegovina, which again, to give people a kind of approximate sense, I usually say for my American audiences, it's about the size of West Virginia. In Europe, we might say it's approximately the size of Wales. 
uh, I guess for mm-hmm. perhaps some of your uh, uh, listeners in Australia or New Zealand, we might say it's approximately the size, I think, of Tasmania, uh, you know, give or take. Um, I think actually a little bit bigger, but not much bigger. So, And the population of Bosnia, according to the last census in 2013, is just over 3 million people. But I think most people understand that at this point, due to high rates of emigration, people leaving the country, the population of Bosnia is probably... St- just under three million, I would I would wager uh, uh, at this juncture. What a wonderful uh, summary of such a complex uh, uh, political setup. Uh, and I think the only other piece to that is that there are three presidents right. on a rotating cycle, and each of those presidents has to be of one of the dominant ethnic groups: uh, a Bosniak, a Serb, and a Croat. And of course, that in itself is then infused with. A number of challenges because they have a tendency to not do much. Yeah, so they 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 each have several mandates during which they are the so-called chairman of the presidency. There's no particular power invested in being the chairman, other than sort of certain technocratic. Uh, uh, you know, you you kind of set the daily agenda for the meeting of the presidency, et cetera, mm. et cetera. But most decisions that the presidency takes have to be at least a two out of three majority. And in certain key decisions, you have to have essentially consensus among all three of the presidency members. The, the far and away, the bigger issue vis-a-vis the presidency, and I'm sure we'll get into this over the course of our conversation, of course, is the fact that you know this setup is discriminatory. Mm. And, and their Bosnia, the state of Bosnia, and, and Bosnia's Dayton constitutional order, as it were, has uh, lost a series, uh, eight key constitutional court decisions, both in front of owns, uh, Bosnia's own constitutional court and, very importantly, the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, essentially all on grounds of discrimination. Because unless you are one of, you know, unless you essentially identify with one of yeah. these three so-called constituent groups, the Bosniak Serbs and Croats, your political rights in Bosnia-Herzegovina are fairly severely curtailed. Yeah, well, effectively non-existent because you can't uh, represent uh, in the, I think in the upper house, but you certainly can't be the president. So, for example, someone like myself who would identify in the Bosnian context as another, mm-hmm. uh, in other words, not part of any of the ethnic groups, right. and would be, I think, is the four percent minority of mm-hmm. the other. Mm-hmm. I certainly, I could never be president of my own birth nation. Right. Never mind the fact that I don't live there, so I'm probably a very bad example. But anybody living there that has similar identity as me uh, would never be able to be uh, a president of their own country, which right. is, uh, of course. Uh, yeah, that's, or, that's, or you yeah. know, I mean, the the example that I also give frequently is, you know, I come from a sort of un, an unusually <laughs> ethnically homogenous family, uh, although, mm-hmm. for instance, not religious at all for like the better part mm-hmm. of the last four generations. So I mm-hmm. could, if I chose, for instance, say, well, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a Bosniak and I identify with the Bosniak community. I don't particularly, but there it is. You know, if I wanted mm-hmm. to sort of participate in political life, I could say that. However, my children who mm. are from a mixed marriage because my partner is neither Bosniak nor Bosnian, mm. they could not, right? Mm. So they would yeah. have to essentially claim to be essentially exclusively Bosniak, for instance, or for that matter, if they wanted to claim exclusive, to be exclusively Serb or Croat or whatever yeah. else, but then they would be potentially challenged, uh, certainly in the kind of day-to-day politics, by, mm. by any number of nationalist sectarian actors who would say, well, no, you can't be a a Bosniak or a Croat or a Serb because you, you know, whatever, you're from a mixed marriage or, you know, yeah. your last name is wrong or, hey, well, you're not actually a practicing Muslim or a practicing Catholic or a practicing, you know, Serb Orthodox, blah, 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 blah. So it's a, it's a pretty, mm. um, it, it's a really, really cynical and, and pretty sort of twisted political regime, especially for, you know, a 21st century European polity that, that on the yeah. face of it should be a democracy. Absolutely. And, and, but I think it's really important to stress how much this dictates the lives of mm. everyday Bosnians. Yeah. I mean, I remember speaking to a friend of mine in Sarajevo, who's again, much like myself. In fact, we share the same first name. You oh. know, that's, that's all I'll say. You know, his, his first name is Vedran. But he was, uh, he was joining the police force, mm-hmm. or wanted to join the police force. And he was uh, hedging his bets as to where his greater chance would be if he joined the police force as a Croat right. or as a Bosniak right. uh, because of the numbers that they were taking in that particular intake exactly. uh, to you know match quotas of Croats. So he chose to go in as a Croat, mm-hmm. never mind the fact that he's got zero to do with 
Croatia, yep. Croatianism, uh, whatever that is, uh, or Catholicism yep. uh, is absolutely not religious. But that's absolutely how you have to play the game, so to speak, Indeed. because the architecture of the country is such that ethnicity is deeply embedded in everything you do. Yeah. Uh, and it's absolutely, um, yeah, it's crippling. Uh, it, and I think this is, uh, yeah, sorry, go on. No, I mean, it, it, the other thing that I think is worth stating, because I think this sometimes kind of gets lost in these conversations, if we're just talking on a basic political human level, there's no issue mm. whatsoever with someone identifying as being Croat or Serb mm. or Bosniak or Roma or Jewish or Hungarian or Italian of whom there are Hungarian and Italian minorities, especially historically in Bosnia-Herzegovina, there are a handful of those individuals still mm, left mm -hmm. in Bosnia. In a liberal democratic society, your individual personal identity is up to you. And you and your community members should be able to participate in all the respective rights, shall we say, that constitute your collective life as a community. And there should be no impediments to that whatsoever whether it be the free practice of your religion, uh, the preservation of your language, the preservation of your script, any other cultural practices. That's all fantastic, good and well. But when you create a system in which political rights and the right to political participation is delineated on the basis of your ethnic identity, that only has the product of promoting sectarianism and turning hmm individual identities and indeed collective identities into sources of strife and conflict. And that is the perversity of, you know, the quote unquote peace agreement uh, mm. <laughs> with which yeah. Bosnia has been saddled with for the better part of the last quarter century. Yeah. And yeah, again, wonderfully said. And I think that's a perfect pivot as well to the elections, mm -hmm. uh, which we just had recently on the 2nd of October, general elections in Bosnia. Mm -hmm. And I think it's th this will tie in neatly to our previous discussion on how deeply infused ethnicity is. Can you talk about the, the well, firstly, the political parties, right. broadly speaking, certainly on the, on, the, on the right side of the political spectrum, how they're delineated and what is the status of the second of October general elections, mm. uh, uh, noting the fact that we're speaking uh, uh, today on the 21st. So Bosnia's political system, political party system, is, uh, you will not be shocked to hear, exceedingly complex. Most Western observers, however, tend to either not understand it or when they think they understand it, they misrepresent it. So let me let me kind of try to demystify it a little bit. Sort of the main and most relevant political actors, obviously, in Bosnia are the uh, kind of three main nationalist blocs. Among the Bosnia community, who's the largest community in the country and constitutes somewhere approximately 50-51% of the population overall, um, you have the, the SDA party, the Party of Democratic Action. This is sort of the main Bosniak nationalist vehicle. On the Croat side... Uh, you have the Croat Nationalist HDZ Party. This is the Croat Democratic Union or Croatian Democratic Union, depending on which translation you want to use. And then in the RS entity and among the broader Serb community, the main sort of vehicle of Serb nationalism is the SNSD, the Alliance of Independent Social Democrats. And just at this juncture, I want to be careful about my language and also explain the language I'm using. When I say Bosniak nationalist or Serb nationalist or Croat nationalist, I'm not suggesting that all Croats or all Serbs or all mm -hmm. Bosniaks are nationalists. No, I'm trying to specifically hone in on those individuals and those parties who are nationalist in terms of their mm -hmm. policies, politics, and rhetoric. Okay. Now, these three parties collectively do win a very, very significant chunk of the overall vote share. However, they always need to caucus with other political actors in order to be able to form government. And this mm. is where the situation then gets more complex. So for instance, in the RS entity, there is a whole host of so-called opposition parties. Almost all of those parties are, to one extent or another, essentially Serb nationalist parties. The difference between them and the SNSD is rooted in a number of things. One, Milorad Dodik, who is the very controversial and longtime leader of the SNSD, is, is a secessionist. He wants to break up Bosnia. He wants to take the RS entity out of Bosnia. Um, he has also been in power since 2006 and has created an expansive patronage economy in the RS entity. So the RS opposition parties don't necessarily disagree with Dodik as to the continued existence of the RS entity or even the nature of the war in Bosnia during the 1990s. 
What they go after him on is the idea of secession, and they're considerably mm. more ambivalent about that idea for various reasons, many of them quite pragmatic, that they think it's unfeasible, that it's dangerous, that it would lead to renewed violence, and also on on corruption charges. This is this is sort of where they really, really go after him, that he's, you know, that he's a criminal, that he's a mafia boss, this kind of stuff. Okay. It, it also means in practice, however, because they have this sort of more critical view towards Dodek and the SNSD, that they're a little bit more open to cooperation with some of the other Bosnian parties, in particular in the Federation entity. And so who are these other parties? Well, uh, in the Federation entity, you have a large, albeit disparate camp of self-identifying Bosnian parties, um, mm-hmm. or what are sometimes referred to as pro-Bosnian parties, though pro the, the, the label pro-Bosnian would also probably include the SDA. So w- what is the difference between saying Bosnian versus say Bosniak? Well, these are parties who believe in a civic, multi-ethnic, secular Bosnia-Herzegovina, wherein Croats, Serbs, and Bosniaks are all fundamentally Bosnians and should mm-hmm. derive political rights on the basis of that shared national civic identity. So for instance, you and I, you know, you live in Australia, I live in in in, in the US, you know, whether someone is, you know, of say African ancestry or East Asian ancestry or European ancestry doesn't matter when you come to Canada or when you come to the US, when you come to Australia, you become that. You become first and foremost an Aussie, you become first and foremost an American, you become first and foremost a Canadian. And so that is essentially the political program that these parties want to enact in Bosnia-Herzegovina. And the key actors mm. among these, this sort of Bosnian camp, essentially, are um, the Social Democratic Party of Bosnia-Herzegovina, uh, a party that calls itself Our Party, Nasha Stranka, mm. as well mm. as uh, a party called the Democratic Front, of whose membership or whose leader is the, the current Croat member of the state presidency is Sjelko Komšić. So mm. in mm. order to form government in Bosnia, you have to always kind of be mixing and melding these sort of nationalist sectarian actors with these sort of civic oriented actors. And mm. essentially post-war Bosnian politics has been defined between the push-pull dynamic between both the nationalist actors among themselves, but also more broadly between the nationalists on the one side and kind of the civic camp on the other. So it's it's an exceedingly, exceedingly complex day-to-day political atmosphere yeah and i think that complexity is made worse by the fact that in bosnia ethnicity and nationality uh, are oftentimes confused mm-hmm. or at least they merged mm-hmm. uh, which is the point you were making i might be an ethnic bosnian yeah. but i have an australian passport you know i will travel in the world as an australian that's right uh, but i think in, in bosnia that's not necessarily the case you might have a bosnian passport which is certainly in, Many in Bosnia wouldn't be mm-hmm. very proud of that mm-hmm. uh, or wouldn't even want a Bosnian right. passport because they would identify as Serb or Croat. Uh, and I think that's that's a long-standing tension that mm-hmm. exists uh, in Bosnia. And, and that's yeah been been made worse by the structural divisions or ongoing yeah, homogenization of the country, you know, since the war. Yeah, though it's it's also interesting, I think, and it, it, it bears explicating that I think there's been um, a troubling sort of mutation in the nature in particular of Serb and Croat nationalist discourses vis-a-vis this question. You're absolutely right that nationalism has long been a feature, not just of Bosnian politics, but Balkan politics more broadly. But well into the 20th century, the, the prevailing narrative among Serb nationalists, both in Bosnia and in Serbia, and Croat nationalists in Bosnia and Croatia, respectively, was that Bosnia was, depending on who you were talking to, Serbian land or Croatian land, Mm. that then happened to feature various other kinds of minorities. And so they were making a claim to Bosnia, but also simultaneously acknowledging the distinctness of Bosnia. You know, it is one of the Serbian lands. It is one of the Croatian lands, da 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 Today, however, and in particular since the end of, um, you know, since the end of the Bosnian War, that position has shifted even further, shall we say, to the right, to a still more extremist mm. point. And that is that the contemporary position of people like Milorad Dodik or his partner in the main Croat Nationalist Party, Dragan Šović, increasingly is that Bosnia doesn't exist. It has never existed. There is no such thing as a Bosnian identity or a Bosnian culture or a Bosnian history. And actually, those territories that are inhabited by ethnic Serbs 
and ethnic Croats within Bosnia-Herzegovina, the, the contemporary state of Bosnia-Herzegovina, they should actually just be completely sort of pulled out of Bosnia and upended to Serbia and Croatia, respectively. And that's a that's a that's a you know that's a significant shall we say normative shift, a significant form of radicalization in what was already a pretty reactionary and problematic position to begin with. And that's a very interesting tie, in, I guess, to what we're seeing in Ukraine at the moment. It's it, it's tying a historical ownership of a particular territory, absolutely, uh, and and ignoring the ongoing existence of a different identity, a uh, a strong. Uh, identity, uh, and I think that's uh, that's absolutely part of the problem. But it, and and confusing that identity with a Islamic right. identity rather than a nation state of Bosnia identity, right. uh, and I think that's how it's also being uh, projected. Uh, and is it also fair to say that all of the kind of hate speech that we've seen, certainly around these elections across mm-hmm. all the parties contesting the elections, this is certainly nothing new in the mm-hmm. Bosnian context but that the drums of war are continuously being used or, or, or struck as a way to galvanize support amongst uh, the kind of nationalist base uh, of those individual leaders. Uh, and we've seen that across, uh, again, all, all three of the sides mm-hmm. uh, kind of using this, the, the past and the war uh, as a way to retain their power base. Right. I think that is fair um, to say that, you know, nationalist rhetoric and sectarian rhetoric has, has been a longtime feature of Bosnian electoral politics. And, and you know, there was a number of rather morbid incidents during this electoral campaign, for instance, where the wife of the leader of the main Bosniak nationalist party invoked, you know, basically said, you know, if, if her party loses, you know, the Bosniak community, it'll just be a matter of time yeah. before they end up in mass graves and concentration camps again. You know, really really, really gross, despicable stuff. However, I have to say, and, and this, and, and, and I'm, I'm kind of sensitive about this because, you know, I do spend a lot of time talking to sort of various Western policymakers. And one of the things I often hear is, well, you know, we've been hearing this kind of rhetoric for a long time, you know, status quo in Bosnia. And mm. I don't think it's status quo in Bosnia, because I think any objective assessment of what has happened in Bosnia over the last, not just 10 years, but I would say over the last 15 years or so, since really 06, when 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 Dodik comes to power, is mm-hmm. we have seen a progressive piecemeal, but very consistent deterioration in the overall political and security climate in the country. I think Bosnia today is objectively a less stable and less safe place than it was, ironically enough, in 2005 or 2006, when the mm. memory of the war was still very, very present. I mean, look, you had, you know, mm. uh, uh, it was barely 10 years after the war. You know, I remember yeah. my first visits to to Bosnia after the war uh, in the early 2000s as a, as a teenager. And I remember what the country looked like. I remember the kind of fear that I felt, that people felt. I don't say this lightly, but the kind of really asymmetric radicalization that we've seen in particular, I think, among the Serb and Croat nationalist camps in Bosnia is really, really very alarming to me. And that's not at Mm. all, as I said, to let parties like the SDA off the hook. I've written extensively about their bad behavior, in particular, as far as corruption and criminality is concerned. But much as in, you know, Ukraine on the eve of the February reinvasion, I think we have to be careful to not take a kind of all sides approach because there is a difference between engaging in corruption and criminality, which many pro-Bosnian mm. and Bosniak actors certainly do, and threatening the very integrity and survival of the state. The consequences mm. of that and the, the 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 sort of the implications of those kinds of politics are on a wholly different plane to me than you know corruption yeah. and criminality, as much as I find it personally. Uh, and obviously politically offensive and and, and abhorrent and and obviously also plays a role in undermining the capacity of the state of Bosnia. Um, that that yeah. you know that we'll we'll take that as a red, but uh, there's nevertheless a difference. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I couldn't agree more. I, and I certainly wasn't trying to do the uh, the old Trump move of uh, you know there are good or bad people on all sides. Uh, <laughs> certainly wasn't doing that, but uh, yes, uh, m- merely highlighting that uh, ethnicity is still used as a as a lever nowadays sure and war is used as a lever uh, to retain support um so what is the state of the second of october general elections at the moment where, where are we standing at the moment so there's two very different and very complicated things uh that, yeah. that need to be addressed so first of all 
there was a host of irregularities that accompanied mm-hmm. the elections in terms of the actual conduct of the vote. And from basically what the Central Electoral Commission of Bosnia has itself decided and deduced, uh, the, the largest chunk of those irregularities appear to have happened in the RS entity, specifically concerning the race for the president of the entity. So not the presidency of Bosnia, but the president of the RS entity, mm. where mm. Milera Dodik, uh, the secessionist leader, was running. He had previously been a member of the state presidency. He opted now to switch or to return to the entity presidency. He was running against an opposition candidate by the name of Jelena Trivic. On the night of the elections themselves, on October 2nd, Trivic came out and said, we won. The opposition has won. We've, we've, we've claimed the seat. Now, I should say right here that that's not particularly unusual. Bosnian mm. political candidates have a tendency of claiming victory. And, you know, that's, that's just sort of, mm. Mm. that's part of the ritual. Pro- yeah, uh, uh, declaring victory. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll declare <laughs> yeah. victory first yeah. and then we'll see where we're at. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that's not particularly unusual. What is unusual is how sure Trivic and her camp seemed. They went out and celebrated in the streets. And also on the flip side, how muted the reaction in the SNSD camp was that night. There was there was several pieces of very interesting footage circulating, which showed Dodik himself clearly very upset. And I can also say as somebody, you know, who was in Sarajevo at the time and was receiving a lot of kind of firsthand accounts from people in the field, there really was the sense that Dodik was running behind in certain key municipalities where he was expected to do, you know, very, very well. So, you know, it's, it was a little one of those like, you know, mm. John King mm. and the Magic Wall and CNN, like, oh, we're, we're doing badly in the Florida panhandle. Um, it, it, you know, it was, it was one of these things. And mm. so it was not mm. entirely plausible, although it was definitely like a po- potential political earthquake in Bosnia, that Dodik was in a very tight race. So then the Central Electoral Commission that night basically says, we're going home <laughs> and, and we're just yeah. going to, you know, we're going to rest and then down, we'll read. Down tools. And, uh... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, we'll, we'll inform you in the morning as to what the status of the race is. And when mm. they kind of reconvene in the morning and they start releasing some of the first preliminary <laughs> results, mm. the narrative has shifted. And now Dodik mm. is running well ahead of Yelena Trivic. And here we go. So again, I want to be careful here. It's not impossible by any stretch of the imagination that a candidate who is, you know, seemingly behind after a big vote dump comes in from, you know, key municipalities where his party is strong, suddenly is doing well. That there's nothing inherently illegitimate, wrong or suspicious about that. But what happens then is that the opposition comes out very very forcefully and says, "We have very credible allegations and evidence of mass voter fraud." And the Central Electoral Commission says, okay, we're going to look into it. And they start looking into it. And they themselves then start saying, we agree. And they Mm. start issuing a recount specifically for the race of the presidency. And then also a handful of other kind of recounts in a number of other municipalities, including some in the Federation entity. So, So that is all happening in the immediate aftermath of October 2nd, that first week after um, Mm. October 2nd. And if you can just mention some of those irregularities, because there were some of them were were, were rather bizarre, right? And huge, yeah. Yeah. So um, you're right. There was there was a whole host of things that were going on. There was classic ballot stuffing. So you know, pre-filled ballots being stuffed into ballot boxes. There was evidence of ballot boxes being opened, and ballots being removed and destroyed, including through burning. Then there was also just instances, even according to the Central Electoral Commission, of very large numbers of sacks of ballots that were to mm. be transported and counted disappearing, uh, mm. including up to in the in the city of Doboy, which is a one of the larger sort of urban centers in the RS. Technically, part of it is in the Federation. We think somewhere potentially in the neighborhood of as many as 19,000 missing ballots. Now, mm. again... This is the the entity of the RS realistically has a population of less than a million people at this juncture. The overall turnout at the elections, we're told, was around 50%, so very, very low. So when Mm. you're talking about 19,000 ballots in a small polity uh, like Bosnia and like the RS entity, this is a very, very significant chunk of votes. 
it, yeah. you know, it's especially definitely, a tight race. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. Yeah. It's it's yeah. definitely yeah. enough to swing election results. Mm-hmm. So it, the the instances were were pretty pretty jarring. Um, and the fact that the electoral commission itself was coming out and saying, "Hey, you know, we have questions," is really what set things off. So mm. as of right now, as you said, as of October twenty first, we are still in the process of a recount. We still do not have official results, as, at least as far as the um, RS entity presidency race is concerned. Mm. There is an mm. important deadline tomorrow. Uh, October 22nd. And so we we may hear more at that time from the Central Electoral Commission, but we, we don't know. We, we, we genuinely mm. don't know. I mean, I will say my gut feeling is probably that Dodik has won, that he has legitimately mm. won, but that he has won by a more narrow margin than his side claim. And that in mm. itself mm-hmm. will be quite contentious. And obviously, the, the, the sort of the, the broader political environment around the conduct of elections will, will leave, you know, a very, very bad taste in the mouths mm. of many people in Bosnia. And given all the irregularities like uh, 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 burning of votes, etc., and, 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 you know, dumping mm-hmm. votes out of nowhere, what do you see as the likelihood of, a, of an actual uh, re-election? So the Central Electoral Commission has came out just, I believe, yesterday, so October 20th, um, and basically said that they were not going to issue a, you know, tutto completo rerun of the elections. I I, I think that would be a pretty dramatic uh, result. To be clear, this has happened in Bosnia before. Elections Mm. have been rerun, but they've been rerun at the individual municipal level. And we've never Mm -hmm. had a rerun of elections at as large and significant administrative level as an entire entity. So mm, I think okay. that would that would be a very, very serious political development in Bosnia. And obviously Dodik and, and his SNSD bloc would be very, very unhappy with that. Not not oh, that that no, should no. stop anyone, but <laughs> just just mm, saying. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And before we get into the I guess the second issue mm-hmm. of the night of the evening, uh, which 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 of course is caused some serious tremors, both in Bosnia, but Mm -hmm. also regionally and Mm -hmm. and perhaps even globally. There is a little bit of sunshine here somewhere, and that is that some of the pro-Bosnian parties uh, have at least made inroads in the federation part. So maybe maybe we can uh, shine a bit of optimism on all of this uh, before we then go down into the pits of of the second challenge. (laughs) And they are pits indeed. Um, Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So we had a very, we had a stunning electoral result actually in the federation, in particular vis-a-vis the presidency. So again, we were talking earlier about this tripartite presidency. So the Serb member of the state presidency is elected exclusively from the RS entity, which means that Serbs in the federation entity, uh, of whom there are tens of thousands, um, you know, they're out of luck. They don't they don't get to vote for the Serb yeah. member of the state presidency. By the same token, Bosniak and Croats in the RS entity don't get to vote for the Bosniak and Croat members of the state presidency because, you know, that's that's just the way it is in Dayton. That, that just doesn't matter. Yeah. They, you, you, just, you, you live in the Obviously. wrong part of the country. Yeah. Um, what yeah. can I do? <laughs> um, mm, so mm. Um, the, the federation entity uh, allocates the, the Croat and Bosniak members of the state presidency. So for the Bosniak race, you had Bakit Izetbegovic, the leader of the SDA party, running for the presidency. He he has held that position before, but he had, during the previous mandate, not been in that office um, because you can only have two successive terms in a row. Um, so uh, another member of his party had narrowly won uh, the last election for the post, 2018. You've got to rotate the seats every now and then. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so uh, Shefik Jafarovic, uh, another mm-hmm. member of the SDA, had won the Bosniak seat in 2018, although quite narrowly against a guy by the name of Denis Bacirovic, who is a member of the SDP, the Social Democrats. But in 2022, in this year's election, uh, Bacirovic was essentially the, the kind of coalition candidate of essentially every other pro-Bosnian party in the Federation and Bosnia as a whole, other than the SDA. So mm. you had a very, very kind of sharp runoff, essentially, although there was a third place candidate who also ran. And I'll say actually a little bit about that in a second, because it is significant. Uh, a, a, an American professor, a Bosnian American professor by the name of Mirsad Hachkadic. So what happens? Well, uh, Denis Bacirovic absolutely destroys Bakit Izetbegovic by the second most significant margin in post-war Bosnian politics. Um, mm. He himself wins something like 57% of the vote to Izetbegovic's, I believe, 37%. Mm. 
And when you combine the vote share that Hajikadic wins, which is about 5%, and the reason why you can combine it with Bacirovic's is because he also ran on a kind of broadly reform civic platform, so very much the same electorate. So it's logical to assume that his voters would have mm. actually gone to Bacirovic rather than, certainly rather than Izabegovic. So if mm, you say mm. that 57 plus 4 or 5 additional percent, you're talking about a margin of somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, low 60, 62 percent. Mm, mm, I mean, mm. th- this was this. He crushed him. And what's really mm, significant mm, about mm. this is not just that Izabegovic is the leader of the SDA. It's that, you know, he is the son of the first wartime president mm. of Bosnia, Ali Izabegovic, right. yeah. who, you know, has certainly among Bosniaks in Bosnia, has a very, very, you know, positive reputation, you know, quote unquote, father of the nation, this kind of jazz, right? So mm-hmm. this was a very, very significant rebuke of the main Bosniak Nationalist Party by not just the Bosniak electorate, I think, but also very large numbers of Bosnians as a whole, um, because we have some indication that a not insignificant number of Bosnian Croats actually also voted for Bacitovic. And then on the, on the Croat side, the situation is a bit more complicated, but nevertheless significant, where Željko Komšić, who, as I said, is this kind of uh, self-identifying Bosnian anti-nationalist figure who, again, like I said, strongly identifies as being Bosnian rather than Croat, but is ethnically Croat, once again was successfully re-elected to the Croat seat on the state presidency. He defeated a woman mm. by the name of uh, uh, Brojana Kristo, who was the HDZ candidate. What's controversial mm-hmm. about this or contentious about this, at least according to the HDZ, is that Krišto won significant support among Bosnian Croats within Bosnia. We can definitely say the majority of Bosnian Croats who went out into the elections voted for Brojana Krišto rather than Željko Komšić. Not all mm. of them, certainly not all of them, right? Komšić does absolutely enjoy support among a segment of the Croat community, uh, the the segment of the Croat community which identifies more with Bosnia than with Croatia, more with these sort of moderate multi-ethnic parties than with the mm-hmm. HDZ, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. But Kristo did win, you know, very clearly the majority of the Croat vote in, 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 in Bosnia. Now, the reason why this is significant is because the HDZ argues incorrectly, but they argue that the Croat, Bosniak, and Serb members of the state presidency are exclusively to be elected by the ethnic constituencies from which they come, i.e. only Croats should be able to vote for the Croat member of the state presidency, only Bosniaks should be able to vote for the Bosniak member of the presidency, and only Serbs should be able to vote for the Serb member. That is not what the constitution says, first and foremost. The constitution only says that a Bosniak, a Croat from the Federation, and a Serb from the uh, RS entity will constitute the state presidency. And that's significant because they are collectively meant to represent all Bosnians, right? They're they're Mm. meant to represent the interests of all citizens, not only their own voters or indeed their own ethnic constituency. Mm. And two, to put into practice what the HDZ wants or claims Bosnian constitutional law says would require some kind of very significant form of segregation at the ballot box. Either Mm, you mm, would have mm. to create exclusively ethnically constituted electoral units, or you would have to create a system whereby people are physically given different ballots according Mm. to their ethnicity. And they would also Mm. have to somehow prove that they are what they say they are presumably Mm, via their identity documents, right? So you would have to say in your state ID, which all Bosnians have, you know, what your ethnicity is. Now, ironically, or not ironically, the Lichna Karta, the the IDs Mm. that Bosnians do have, does actually Mm. have a slot for ethnicity. But almost everyone keeps it blank for various reasons, including a series of legal rulings, which have basically said that that's discriminatory. You actually can't force someone to declare their ethnicity. And of course you can't, you know, by, by what mm. legal or, or democratic um, mechanism would you do this? So this is the kind of the, the impasse. What the HDZ wants, everyone that understands basically European legal practice understands is legally unsustainable because Article mm. 2.2 of the Bosnian Constitution says that the European Convention on Human Rights supersedes all Bosnian domestic law. 
So even if the Bosnian authorities were to pass such a law that would do what the HDZ wants it to do, it would be illegal by virtue of Bosnia's own constitution, which says the uh, European Court of Human Rights supersedes domestic law, right? And yeah. it is one of the articles which the constitution also says cannot be removed or abridged. So mm. you can't mm. even remove that clause from the Bosnian constitution. So mm. again, this goes back to what I was saying earlier, this push-pull between the civic and nationalist actors. The, the, yeah. the, the nationalist camp, they don't only uh, just kind of like and benefit from the existing sort of ethno-sectarian model in Bosnia. They actually want mm. to entrench it and deepen it further, which I imagine yeah. will bring us to the next part of the conversation. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And just before we do that, I just want to pick up on one point because I, I dare say and and – uh, I want to give uh, perhaps some credit where credit is due. Mm -hmm. It seems to me at least that the designers of the Dayton Peace Accord uh, had given this already some thought, which is partially the reason why, as undemocratic as it you know seems on surface, why Bosniaks in RS can't vote for the Bosniak uh, representative. Right. Uh, because they the designers of Dayton, I guess, wanted the individuals going into the presidency to represent that entire region rather than purely the ethnic uh, constituents, which sounds sound sound in, in in theory, right? Yeah, I mean, I've I've sort of made the argument recently in some of my texts that uh, you know Article Two, the one referring to Article Two Point Two, referring to the um, uh, the European Convention on Human Rights, is in mm. effect a kind of proverbial sunset clause on the mm -hmm. on the on the most sectarian aspects of the Dayton Constitution. Mm. It's a sunset clause, however, that requires activation. And it has, in a sense, mm. been activated via a, a series of these legal challenges at the European Court of Human Rights and Bosnia's own constitutional courts. Right. The, the outstanding issue is obviously enacting those rulings, putting them into legal practice. And as to the question of whether or not the actual architects and designers of Dayton realized fully the implications of what they're doing, it's an interesting question. I suspect yes, but I can't prove it. I mean, a number of the mm. individuals who who literally wrote the text of Dayton are still around. They're still active in American politics. I know one or two of them. I don't know. I'll email them, <laughs> and they can tell me, That's, and I'll we'll go from there. Well, yeah. Well, no, well, and also I'll uh, I'll I'll ask you to put me in touch because uh, I'd like to ask them publicly <laughs> as to their logic. Yeah. Uh, but now let's uh, let's get into the second contentious issue, to pull it mildly. Thank you for listening to the first part of my conversation with Yasmin. Please join us for part two on Thursday, 27th of October. And since you got this far, please consider rating or reviewing the show wherever you get your pods. You can also support the show directly through our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash the voices of war. Thank you. And until the next time. <laughs>